the millennium is the least understood time that we see out of all the errors that there are. The millennium period. And the title of our message is Answering Questions About the Millennium. I do a Q&A twice a week, and we have gotten more questions about the millennium over the period of 174 episodes of, of Q&As. We've gotten more questions about the millennium than anything else, and sometimes uh, driving me crazy. In fact, I kind of snapped out a little bit at one point, and um, somebody said, well, Pastor Robert's mad at us for asking about the millennium. I really wasn't, maybe annoyed would be the proper response. Maybe, uh, maybe not annoyed, maybe frustrated. All right, maybe that would be a better response. But uh, the other title we have for this is The Millennium Explained. And we want to start by explaining what the millennium is. And I want to do this from our perspective. There's three different views on the millennium. There's actually five different views on the millennium, but I'm not going to break it down that far. I'm going to give you guys the three main views on the millennium. I'm going to start with what ours is, and I'm going to explain to you what our view is. And when I say ours, I mean Calvary Chapel, all right, which will be the majority of you will have that view. Some of you will not then cover our text and look at the specifics about the millennium. So we're going to cover the text that we've got. Then we're going to look at the specifics about what the Bible says the millennium is going to be like. It's interesting. Um, there was a scholar by the name of Dwight Pentecost who said that there is more about, written about the, Pentec uh, about the millennium than any other time frame in all of the scriptures. When you go back into especially the prophets, Isaiah and Micah and Zechariah and Ezekiel, you've got all of these statements about the millennium. And you've got to really dive into some of those, and we're going to do some of that tonight. Now, it is a period of a thousand years. Again, I'm going to give you my view first of all, then we're going to, we're going to break off from that, or our view, I'm going to say first of all, and then I'm going to break away from that. It is a period of a thousand years at the end of the age which Christ reigns over the world and over Jerusalem and over the nation of Israel. Part of what is happening in the millennium, I believe, is God keeping his promises to the restored nation of Israel. The Old Testament is full of God's promises. Ezekiel 34 through 39, especially, of restoring the nation of Israel. The last restoration is them spiritually, where they receive Jesus as their Messiah. I believe that last section is talking about the millennium period, period where Christ rules on the throne of David and rules over the nation of Israel. Now, some believe the thousand years is not a literal but represents a long period of time. The reason they believe this is because there's a few places in the Bible where a thousand years is used and it's not used exactly to mean a thousand years. Let me give you a couple of those. Psalms 84.10 says, for the, a day in your courts is better than a thousand. So even though that's, that's kind of literal, but it's just kind of making a statement, right? It's used more here in a poetic way. A day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be the doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. Then you have 1 Chronicles 16, 15. This is another example. There are a couple more places where a thousand is used this way, but this is another example. Remember his covenant forever. Okay, so there you got the term forever. The word which he commanded for thousands of generations. Okay, so you've got it used there in a metaphorical way. So there are those who believe that the thousand years is not a literal thousand years, but that it speaks of a long period of time instead. And there's 
two different positions that believe that as well. Now let's talk about the different beliefs of the millennium. I'm going to start with all millennialism first. I'm going to end with premillennialism because I'll spend the most time on that because that's the one that I am the most familiar with. So anytime you put an A in front of a word, it means it neglects the word, all millennial. So some have, have used non-millennial, which is really not correct for all millennialism. All millennialism believes that we are in the millennium now, that it is, it is the time that we are living in. And I... I'm not really familiar with everything that all millennialists believe, so I'm going to give you a presentation. The last thing that I want to do to a position that I don't agree with is to straw man it, to make it look silly so you can tear it down. I always want to steel man the opposition. I want to make them look as strong as they possibly can. And that way, when you're making a decision about it in the future, when you run into somebody who believes it, you don't go, well, Pastor Robert made it sound like you guys didn't believe this or didn't believe that. And they're like, no, we certainly believe it. Now, the millennium, if it is today, there are a lot of questions that we have. If it is the millennium, then Satan can't be bound. He's got to be the binding of Satan then in the bottomless pit has got to be figurative as well. The thousand years would be figurative. The binding of Satan would be figurative because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, right? And, and the enemy roars around, walks about like a roaring lion. Now, he is restricted. We know that he just can't come after us. We have angels that minister to us. We've, we've been told that if we are in Christ, the evil one cannot touch us. So we do know that Satan is reserved now, which is really good because he's really a creep. And he would attack us in any way he could if we didn't have that protection that is in Christ. Um, the, so Satan not being bound is problematic for that. Um, this not being a time of peace is problematic for that position because the Bible says that it is a time of peace. They beat their plowshares into, or their swords into plowshares. And it says it's literally a time of, it's a time of safety. I don't know, I don't feel really safe right now. There's a, you know, but it's a time of safety. And we're going to cover some of the scriptures that talk about these. Um, I'm sure someone with that position has their answers to these things, but they are indeed problematic. And I encourage you, if you want to dive in more to what each position believes and their defenses for the positions, there are plenty of books that you can pick up to be able to get that. The second position is post-millennialism. Postmillennialism believes that the world, that I, they may believe that we are in the millennium right now, but they believe that as time moves on, that they are going to Christianize the world more and more. And that Jesus is going to return at a certain point when the world has been Christianized enough and they're going to hand over a Christianized world to them. So a postmillennialist is going to be more involved politically because they believe they are politically taking over the world. There's some other theologies that connect with this, which makes someone have a tendency to be more political. My question in that position, again, not wanting to straw man them, I want to steel man them, but a problem that I find with that particular position, and it happened here, I'll tell you this about this in a minute, experience with it, is that it doesn't look to me like the world is getting better and better. It doesn't look to me like the world is becoming more and more Christianized. And in fact, this was very popular in the late 1800s. And then when World War I and World War II came along, the popularity of postmillennialism dropped off. Um, Pentecostals today, some Pentecostals today, 
believe in post-millennialism. That's where you're going to find the majority of it. Uh, it is interesting, though, that there are a lot of Pentecostals who are um, dispensationals, and they are, they're, dispensation, they're, they're not dispensationals, okay? Because a true dispensational is going to believe in seven dispensations, and one of those dispensations is that the gifts of the Spirit are finished. They're cessationists. They believe that the gifts of the Spirit have ceased. And so we, Calvary Chapel, are not dispensational. But we are dispensational. We agree with dispensationals on eschatology. We don't agree with them on the other stuff, but we agree with them on eschatology. It's also interesting that amillennialism was part of the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church believed in and still holds to amillennialism and that there are Protestants today who, who hold on to amillennialism as well. This is my opinion, my view. I think that in the Reformation, it just didn't go far enough in reforming that because post-millennialism, pre-millennialism, which I'm going to tell you about in a moment, is the oldest of all of these positions. Doesn't make it true, right? So there's nothing scripturally that says if something was held by the early church fathers, that makes that position true over someone that held it differently. Plus the premillennialism of the first century, Irenaeus and Athanasius and some of the other guys that were there, the, premillennial, the premillennialism that they had was a little different than, than the premillennialism that we have today. There are some things they believe differently than premillennialism today, but premillennialism is the oldest that is out there. I find postmillennialism to be the most problematic. Um, so those are the ones who would believe that. And that's why the music from Bethel and from Hillsong who are post-millennial. That's why a lot of times their worship will have a lot of kingdom now theology. You, you get the songs that talk about the kingdom. Come bring your kingdom here now. Do it now. And that's why we moved away from a lot of Hillsong and Bethel's songs. We didn't, I didn't go to the worship groups and say, listen, we need to stop doing Hillsong and Bethel. Although if, after a few things that Bethel did here recently, especially with the book that they wrote and then they pulled off of the market, now, maybe them pulling it off a of market speaks of some repentance. I don't know that they've repented from the false teachings that were in it, but it made me feel good that we had done this, both with our radio station and with the, the worship here. I just said, let's stay away from Bethel and Hillsong as much as we can because their theology and their songs is not always good. And I'm not just talking about post-millennialism because that's really, quite frankly, it's a secondary issue. But in a lot of the, the major issues, there's problems in their songs. And um, I saw that Elisa Childers is going to start Elisa Childers Music. And I, I watched a video on it. The reason she's doing that is because she sees problems with a lot of the worship music that is written today that just isn't, it, it, it just isn't right. And um, I'm trying to think of who it was. Um, Martin Luther or... I can't remember who it was, um, but it's one of those guys. It was one of the old guys in the Reformation who said the, the church is going to sing its way into heresy before it ever preaches its way into heresy. That we're going to have a, be a little bit more lenient with our music because of artistic license and we allow things to come in that aren't quite right and then go, ah, but you know, it's singing, but you would never teach it. You would never say something that is said in the songs because it was wrong. It's not biblical. So you would never say that. All right. So that's postmillennialism and amillennialism. Then there's premillennialism, which it, this, this comes down to the, the way you read through the Bible. So if you read the Bible as literal as you can, 
If the first sense makes sense, don't look for any other sense is the way that we, again, Calvary Chapel, read the Bible. We want to literally, I think it's personally, I think it's the safest way to read the Bible. Because if I'm allegorizing something that isn't obviously um, allegorized, then I might make a mistake. Now, having a literal reading of the Bible doesn't mean that you don't believe it has any metaphors. This is where we've been straw manned by the other side. And they'll say, well, Calvary Chapel or whoever, these guys who are literalists, you know, they don't, they don't see any metaphors in the Bible at all. Well, that would be silly, wouldn't it? How are you going to read Daniel chapter 7 without any metaphors? How are you going to read the beast that comes out of, the, out of the sea? What is it, chapter 16 of the book of Revelation? And the, and the beast that comes out of the land that has seven heads and ten horns and, and uh, you've got a, a woman, a harlot, who's riding the beast. How are you going to read all that? Because it's obviously not literal. We just believe there are clues when something is to be a metaphor. So you would be reading it. So if, if when you read here in a moment in Revelation 20 that the thousand years, it's going gonna, it's gonna to sound very literal. That's why we take a literal position. If it said something like, and it was as it were a thousand years, that's a, that's a clue that something's, met, as it were, it, something's a metaphor here. If it said, um, and Christ will reign for a thousand years whose beginning is like the end and the end is like something along those lines that just didn't seem to make sense. It has something in it that, that, that says it. If I read of a throne that God sits upon, we take that as a literal throne. But if we read of a throne that is over the nation of Babylon and those uh, who set upon it are, you know, whatever, but, but the throne is obviously not a real throne, we can then go, that's a metaphor. So that's the way we approach it. Now, approaching the Bible that way brings you to a literal position on the nation of Israel, that you believe that God chose the nation of Israel, restored the nation of Israel, never, that, that blindness was given to them in part until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, Romans eleven twenty five and 26. So we believe that God did set Israel aside for a time until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. But all millennialism and historical premillennialism is going to believe that the church has taken the promises of Israel. That when you read of Israel in the Old Testament, it is replaced by the church in the New Testament. We do not believe that. And I think seeing the nation of Israel restored today, seeing things biblically happening, like Israel being born again in a day, just like the Bible said that that would happen. God said that he was going to bring, the, he was going to make the land desolate and then he was going to restore the land first and he was going to bring the people back in the land and then he was going to restore them as a nation. And then the, the temple is going to be rebuilt. So it's the next thing we're looking for. And when I understand why in the early church and even through when, when Catholicism started and then when the reformers came in after that, I understand why they came to the stances that they came to. Because they're, to me, they're looking at the world and they're seeing no Israel. The land of Israel is desolate. It's completely destroyed. But eschatology is full of Israel. You find Israel everywhere in eschatology. You find that Jerusalem is going to be made a cup of trembling in the last days. And so they, and, and, and maybe we shouldn't do this. Maybe we shouldn't look at the world 
and go, this doesn't fit with what this is saying, so let me go ahead and, and fix that. Now, to me, that's what I think happened. I think that they, they went, let's, you know, we don't see Israel, so the church is Israel. And all of the promises God made to Israel, God's going to fulfill to the church. And you know how I feel about that. It's problematic. I think it's maligning to God. When God makes a promise to someone, if he makes a promise to me and he fulfills it to you, that doesn't seem right to me. Now, some people will say, well, God can't do anything wrong. So if it doesn't seem right to you, God did it right anyway. And although I understand that argument, I think there's another option here. Maybe I, I do understand it. And maybe God didn't do that. It could be that maybe I, I think something's right wrong that's right, or it could be that God didn't do it because God's only going to do what's righteous and that isn't right. So when it comes to theology, you're dealing with these kind of things. So we believe that the thousand years is a literal thousand years. That as we move through time, that we are going to have a tribulation period. Jesus said there's a time coming that's worse than anything this world has ever seen and worse than anything this world's ever going to see. And then you're going to have the resurrection, rapture. The people are going to be resurrected I believe it is before the tribulation period, before we're out of the book of Revelation, I'm going to give you a whole defense on that. I'm going to give a whole study on defending why I believe that it's before the tribulation. Now, again, this is a secondary issue. We're not going to retract a hand of fellowship with someone because they believe the rapture is halfway through or at the end of it. These are secondary issues that we have fellowship with. But we believe, Calvary Chapel, us, the church, most of us, most evangelicals believe this. Most evangelicals are premillennial. Most evangelicals believe that the church is going to be, that there's a resurrection and a smaller part of the resurrection is what we would call the rapture of the church. Any time the resurrection takes place, there's going to be living people that have to be changed in a moment and a twinkling of an eye, wherever you believe it. That's why when people write in the comment section, it drives me crazy. There is no rapture. It's like, I just finally started writing thanks. Thanks. You know, instead of going into all of it again, because, hey, no matter what you believe about it, unless you don't believe there's going to be a resurrection, why people are still alive, you believe that he's coming back for the living and the dead. And that's in our creeds. Jesus is coming back for the living and the dead. There are going to be people living that will be raptured during that time. We believe that's before the tribulation period, leaving saints who are going to become Christians after or are going to become believers after uh, we are taken away. And the Antichrist comes out on the scene and things get really difficult. They make up the portion of people who will not worship the beast, who are going to be killed because they don't take the mark of the beast. And you have the Jews that are in the area. And in chapter 12 of Revelation, you have the dragon wanting to devour the child from the woman who was caught up to God in heaven. The child was caught up to God in heaven. It's very clear that this woman that has the 12 stars is Israel. She gives birth to the Messiah. The dragon wants to devour the child and tries, but the child is caught up into heaven. And then the dragon goes to make war against the child, against the offspring, or, the, or, or, or against the woman, excuse me. The dragon goes to make war against the woman who is Israel, and God takes her on two wings of an eagle, carries her out into the wilderness and protects her. The dragon opens up his mouth and has a flood, and the ground opens up and swallows up the flood and Israel is protected throughout the rest of the tribulation period. So you have Jews that will be alive when Jesus comes back to this earth and destroys, we read, all the wicked. So he destroys all of the wicked. And you've got Gentiles who have survived 
that are still alive. These are those who populate the millennium. Israel, fulfilling all the promises that God made to Israel about the Messiah reigning on the throne and what it was going to be like when he reigns on the throne. So it fulfills them all. And Gentiles who will populate the Gentile parts of the world again. That's premillennialism. That's what we, Calvary Chapel, ourselves, most of us here, believe about millennialism. This is why when people ask questions like, oh, are we going to be able to be married in the millennium? And I answer it like 10 times. When I'm asked it again, I'm like, don't ask that question anymore. No, we're not going to be married during the millennium because we have, been, we have been brought into the presence of God. And Jesus said, we are like the angels. We are not married or given in marriage. It doesn't mean you're not going to know your husband or your wife, okay? Doesn't mean there won't be a special relationship because you guys have kids together. You guys love each other now. You're going to love each other in eternity. Doesn't mean you won't be fond of them, but I'm sorry. The relationship of a husband and wife will change. It's just what the Bible says, all right? But we will be in heaven. It does mean you could have a cat. I don't know. What, what we, I'm going to be talking about what we're going to be doing with cats, but that's one of the questions that I get. Am I going to be able to have a cat in the millennium? I don't know that you're going to want one in a glorified body, but maybe. Maybe you want like 20 of them. I couldn't take care of 20 at home, but I can take care of 20 here. We can take care of all these cats that are here. So maybe you can. Will there be animals in the millennium? Yes. Why? Because there's animals that have survived. And there's animals talked about in the millennium in the Old Testament that I'm going to read you here in just a few moments. All right, now with those millennial aspects out of the way, um, let's go ahead and look at our text. We're going to talk in a few moments about why God would do a millennial. Why would God have a millennial? He's got to fulfill the stuff for Israel. He has a group of people that are going to live that don't have an influence from Satan. At the end, he'll be released, and then they will have that influence again. There's a few other reasons we'll talk about why God would have a millennium. He had to rule and reign over the nation of Israel, according to the Old Testament. So Revelation 20, verse 4. This is right after the devil is bound. The devil is caught and bound for a thousand years. And that's our first introduction to the thousand-year period. And then in verse 4, it says, I saw thrones, and they sat on them, which is kind of nebulous. Devil is bound for a thousand years, and I saw thrones, and they sat on them. So who is the they? How many thrones are there? Where are the thrones? So this could be a lot of different things. It says, and judgment was committed to them. So we know that wherever the thrones are and whoever the they are that are sitting on the thrones are going to be given judgment and it's committed to them. Now here's what Jesus said to his 12 disciples in Matthew 19, verse 28. So Jesus said to them, assuredly I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of glory, you who follow me will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now again, when we, when we look at the literal principle, we're not going to allegorize that because there's nothing weird about it. There, there's no clues. I don't want to say weird because then it makes it sound if somebody allegorizes it, they're allegorizing something that's weird, all right? Steel man, not straw man. So judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So that seems clear. So this could be thrones set up for the disciples to judge during that time because Jesus is going to be reigning over Israel. We're also told that we are going to rule and reign with him, that we're going to sit on his throne with him, and that we're going to rule and reign with him. So maybe this is thrones throughout the world, and we are ruling and reigning in different regions throughout the world, which could also be the rewards that we wonder. 
is God rewarding us by the position that we receive in the millennium when he says you will receive a reward? Because we often ask the question, why, why am I going to be rewarded for the good things that I've done that stand up under the fire? Let me read a couple of passages to you. We have Isaiah 40:10. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand and his arms shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. So when he comes with his reward, perhaps his reward is us ruling and reigning. And when it talks about rewards for more stuff that's done with an honest heart, then maybe it's a different position in, in being rewarded for it. Maybe these rewards really do matter because we ask that question, do they matter? Am I just gonna toss them like the 24 elders do, their crowns before God? Let me read you Matthew 16, 27. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels and he will reward each according to his work. So when he comes, this is the beginning of the millennial, he will reward each one with his work. Revelation 20, 12. And behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me and I give it to everyone according to his work. So his reward is given to us according to our work. Now, Works are not salvation, but there is rewards that are spoken of with works. And this should be an encouragement to us to live our lives faithfully to Christ. And, and, and I would think that that is why they're there. One more. This is Matthew 25, 23. His, uh, his Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. This is the parable of the talents. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Now, that's a parable. You don't want to hang a lot of weight on it. But at least here, there's a reward of ruling that we see. And it's when the Lord returns after giving talents to people and then returns and gives them the reward of ruling. So who are the thrones? Who are they that sat on the thrones? At least the 12 disciples, maybe all Christians who rule and reign with them because we are kings and priests and we are going to rule with them. And whenever I read the passage which says we're going to roll with them, I always go, I don't know what, I don't know what that means. And so, so maybe this is a little bit of that question. And judgment is committed to them. And then it says, then I saw the souls of those that had been beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast and his image and had not received the mark on his forehead and on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So and maybe the, the thrones are for them. These are the people who during the tribulation period, which we believe is after the church was taken out of the way, that they committed their lives to Christ and then they are killed. And now they are resurrected and they will rule and reign with him. There are resurrected saints and there are people who are going to be living during the millennium period. And then it says, but the rest of the dead did not live until the, one, the thousand years was finished. This is the first resurrection. Now, people will often bring this up. This is the first resurrection, which would tell you that the resurrection rapture has to happen after the tribulation period because this is after the tribulation period these things are happening. But the first resurrection doesn't need to be a reference to that event only. You could have the first resurrection being the resurrection of the living to everlasting life and the second resurrection being the resurrection of the condemned to everlasting death because it makes that reference to it. So it would include Jesus being resurrected, part of the first resurrection. It would include 
the church and those who are alive, who were resurrected in the, in, the, in the resurrection rapture of the church. And it would include these who had been killed during the tribulation period, who were Christians, being resurrected. The rest of the dead aren't going to live for a thousand years. They're going to remain in the grave. But that would be those who are going to be judged, which we're going to read about in this chapter as well. It says, but the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. So the first resurrection is not compared to the second resurrection, but to the second death. Because they're not being resurrected to eternal life. They're, they're being resurrected to death. I'm not saying that hell isn't eternal, okay? I'm saying that they're resurrected to what is called the second death. And we are going to have, again, we're going to have a study here pretty soon before we're out of Revelation, and we're close, on the different views on hell. The different views on hell and what the Bible has to say. It's interesting to me that when I hear people teach on hell, they don't ever talk about the pair, and, and they talk about hell being an eternal fire and Gehenna being a garbage dump. And I got a lot to share on that when I'm ready to, uh, when we're there. But they will not talk about the destruction passages. They, they don't talk about the perishing passages. They don't talk about the death passages. The wages of sin is death. That those who don't believe in Jesus will perish, it says in John 3, 16. That many, are, many find the way to life, but few find, or many find the way to destruction, destruction. Many find the way to everlasting life. All right? So this death here, uh, for some, means something different. So in other words, the worm and the fire are an analogy or death, perishing, judgment are an analogy, or death, perishing, destruction are an analogy. You can't have both of those existing at the same time. And all I'm saying is when we're talking about hell, let's talk about it in a biblical way. Let's talk about everything the Bible says about it. Let's not do a whole Bible study on hell and not talk about the fact that the Bible uses the term destruction. Or says some are beaten with many stripes and some are beaten with few. And I've sat under a lot of studies about hell and not heard those, those passages brought up when you're talking about hell. And I think to do that is, is a bit maligning. I'm on a real big rabbit trail right now. So I'm pulling back. We're going to talk about hell in another Bible study. This is the millennium. And I've been looking forward to this one. All right. But I, that all came up because over that, the second death, which is the second part of the resurrection, has no power but they shall be priests of God, of Christ, and shall reign with him for a thousand years. So maybe the thrones that, and, and those who sat on them are these. Maybe that's who the thrones were for, and we're going to rule and reign in a different way. But those who were martyrs during the tribulation period, which must have been horrible, not being able to buy or sell during that time, get to rule and reign with him. Some believe they're not part of the church. I'm not sure that's true. And so they would be brought up here in a different section. Like the church would be brought up earlier and now they would be brought up again because they're believers but not part of the church. Like the Old Testament saints are believers but not part of the church. Okay? So let's, um, that's the end of our text. Let's take a look at the characteristics of the millennium period. And I'm going to go kind of quick. So if you're taking notes, get ready. Get ready to write fast. Now remember that you can go to YouTube for this Bible study you can click on this video and that down below are timestamps. And every one of the passages we're covering are in the timestamps on YouTube. So if you need to fill your notes in because I talk 100 miles an hour, especially when I'm talking about something that has so much content to it, 
then you can go to YouTube, go to the timestamps, you'll be able to find it. Just give us a couple of days to get the timestamps up and uh, they will be up. So first of all, it is a time of peace. The, the millennium is a time of peace. Uh, it says in Isaiah 2, 4, he shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither will they learn war anymore. Now, we can't say that that's happening now. Nation is still rising up against nation. I remember my mom telling me when I was a kid that Jesus can't come back for at least a thousand years because the Bible says there'll be a thousand years of peace and then the end will come. I don't know how old I was, 10, 11, 12, somewhere around there. And I believed it. I was like, oh, we're a long ways away then because got to have a thousand years of peace. Not quite exactly what it's saying. The end will come after the millennium. Zechariah 9.10, we're still talking about peace, that the millennium is a time of peace. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and from the house from Jerusalem and the house from Jerusalem. The battle bow be cut off. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from river to river to the ends of the earth. So there will be no war during the time of the millennium. And it makes sense. Jesus is ruling and reigning with a rod of iron. He's the one who's making the decisions. He's the one that's dealing with people that are still sinful because they still have the sin nature and he is handling it properly. This is a true theocracy. He is, he is the government. He is running it. It is God who's running it. And it makes the tribulation period these things. It is a time of safety. Not only no war, but a time of safety. Micah 4.4. But everyone shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and they shall not make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts have spoken. You can leave your doors unlocked. You can hang out outside. You don't got to worry about the shady character walking by because there are no shady characters walking by because he's taking care of it. He, he, he's ruling with a rod of iron, which means if someone gets out of line, he's going to take care of it. It is a time of worshiping Christ in Jerusalem. I'm just giving you examples of what it says, by the way, because if I was giving you every verse that said these things, there'd be way too many of them. There are five or six that talk about worshiping during the millennium period in Jerusalem. This is just an example. Zechariah 14, 16, and it shall come to pass that everyone who is left of all the nations who come against Jerusalem. So here we have the nations that came against Jerusalem and all that are left from those nations. Now, I believe that when he comes to in the end and destroys the wicked, that children who don't know what their right hand is from their left will not be killed. So I've got a study that all children go to heaven, playoff of all dogs go to heaven, okay? And I talk about why I believe that's true and I go over all the scriptures that point that out. And I believe that that is the case. So these could be the children who grow up during that time. And they will come to Jerusalem and there they will worship the king, the Lord of hosts. And this is, again, it's just one example. There's many more examples of going to Jerusalem to worship. So Jesus will rule and reign from the throne of David from Jerusalem. It is a time when people live longer. This is an So that promises that infants aren't dying early, nor do old men who have not fulfilled his days. So they're living to, to whatever the days are. We don't know what those days are. 
for the child shall die 100 years old. So if, if someone's 100 and they die, they're still a child. So it looks like this is reverting back to the antediluvian period, the pre-flood period, where they lived to be about 900 years. Since that's what it was before the flood. So it looks like it's, it's going back to that. Also, it is a time of healing. Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. The ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer. The tongue of the dumb will sing. The water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. So it'll be a time of, of well watering on the earth as well. It'll be a time of justice because Jesus is just in everything he does. And Isaiah 9, 7 says, of the increase of his government. Now, this is a very familiar passage. This is a Christmas passage, right? Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Then this is the next verse. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. So the child who is born is going to have a government that's not going to have any end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom. So he's going to sit on the throne of David and over the kingdom. That's Israel. Over the kingdom of God, not Israel. To order it and establish it with ju judgment and justice. He is just. He will establish that kingdom with judgment and justice. Now, if he's talking about the kingdom that, that goes after the millennium, at that point, what does he have to have justice and judgment anyway? It needs to be during the time that he's ruling and reigning, if you follow me. From that time forward, even forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts has performed this. So once he receives his kingdom, that kingdom will go on forever, but it's only in the millennium, in that time before the destruction of heaven and earth and the recreation of a new heaven and earth, which we're going to get to in Revelation, all right? We're close to the end. It is a time of Christ reigning. It says he will be great and he will be called the son of the highest. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. This is, again, a reference to the house of Jacob. The plain reading of this is the house of Jacob. Jacob had his name changed to Israel. That's the plain reading of it. A time of God, excuse me, a time of God's will being done on earth. And this isn't surprising we read about this several places in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, Jesus said, when you pray, pray like this, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So his kingdom's gonna come and his will is gonna be done during the millennium period on earth as it is in heaven in response to all of our prayers when we prayed, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And finally, it is a time uh, of peace for wild animals. Now, I ran out of time to be able to keep listing the things that characterize tribulation, the, the millennium period. There's many more of them. This one's really interesting, though. Do you remember that during the tribulation period, there was a point when animals attack men? The animals come out of the woodwork and start attacking people during the tribulation period. It's early on in the tribulation period, maybe chapters five or six, uh, six or seven. Here it says, the wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. So all the paintings that have the lion and the lamb during the millennium are wrong. You have Jesus, the lion and the lamb, but you've got a lion and a lamb laying down. Or how many times do I hear people in messages say, it's the lion and the, in the millennial, the lion's going to lay down by the lamb. Well, eh, they're going to lie down. The wolf shall lie down with the lamb. That makes sense. The wolf is a predator for the lambs. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. 
the calf and the young lion. So they're lying down. It's just not the lion and the lamb lying down together. It says, and the little child shall lead them. So a little child will be among the wild beasts and they'll, they'll be able to lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. It's not something you see today. You see the bear grazing on the cow. Their young ones will, shall lie down together. So the bear and the, the calves will be lying down together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole and the weaned child shall put his hand in a viper's den. So we just don't have the destruction on the earth from animals, which is a good thing if we live in Arizona during the millennial period with all the rattlesnakes we got around here. All right, three things in closing. Number one, whatever your position on the millennium is, we are fellow heirs in Christ. The, the, what, what we believe is going to happen in the millennium is a secondary issue. It doesn't mean secondary issues aren't important. It doesn't mean that knowing the truth isn't important and that we should just say, well, I don't need to do that. There are some that call themselves non-millennialists and they are ones that don't want to look it up. Now, millennialism doesn't mean non-millennial. They, they believe in a millennium. But there are those who call themselves non-millennialists. It's not really a position because this is just a few people. And what they're saying is, I'm agnostic on the situation. I don't care what it is. It's not important to me. And that's the worst position of all. It's like the people who say, I'm a pan-tribulationist. I'm agnostic on the position. It's all going to pan out in the end. I don't care. But God's given us his word and direction for us to go in. So we want that. Nevertheless, the right hand of fellowship is to be extended to someone who believes something different than us when it isn't a major issue, like the resurrection of Christ, like the deity of Jesus. These are things that we cannot give the right hand of fellowship. Doesn't mean we're nice to them, not nice to them. It means I can't give them the right hand of fellowship as another believer if they don't believe these things. So we couldn't, to Mormons, we can't give the right hand of fellowship to. To Jehovah Witnesses, we can't give the right hand of fellowship to. To the, the Worldwide Church of God, Herbert W. Armstrong. Although I do hear, and I've seen no evidence of it, maybe it's true, that some of the churches within the Worldwide Church of God are rejecting the heresies that are taught in it, which, would, which, would make it, which makes it a cult. So I hear they're rejecting it, but, but right now we, we couldn't give the right hand of fellowship. But we can to Christians that believe something different about the millennium. All right, and a few other things. So when I say secondary issue, that's what I mean. Number two, even though there's a lot of mystery here, there's a lot of mystery when it comes to the tribulation period and, and reigning with them, we're gonna reign with them. I, like I always say, I don't know how, I don't know when, I don't know where, I don't know how, but we are going to reign with him. And what an amazing thing that's going to be. And finally, it will be great to see what the world is like under the ultimate theocracy. Jesus reigning on the throne. And we don't have to watch the news at night and shake our head. Or like me right now, I don't watch the news because every time I watch it, I get upset and I'm like, I'm done. I'm done being upset. I like my peace a little bit more than that. I'm not saying you should do that. I'm just saying that's me right now. I'm in a news-free zone and happy and peaceful, relaxed, so nice. All right, I want to end with this song and I'm going to sing it to you because I couldn't get no one to sing it for you. And I'm just kidding. I'm going to end with this song. The song is, uh, you generally a Christmas song, but it's not a Christmas song. It's joy to the world. 
And it's one of the favorites that's out there. And we sing it here around Christmas time. Next time you hear it, listen to the words. I'm just going to read you a few of the words. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. That fits baby Jesus for sure. Let earth receive her king. That fits baby Jesus. Let every heart prepare him room. Fits baby Jesus. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. That doesn't fit the baby Jesus. He came first time to suffer, not to reign. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns. Let all the earth employ. While fields and flocks and rocks and hills and plains repeat the sounding joy. He rules the world with truth and grace. Joy to the world is about Jesus ruling in the millennium. And he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonder of his love. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. So the next time we're singing that song, you guys will go, this is about the second coming of Christ and the establishing of his kingdom upon the earth. And it's awesome when you look at it in that light. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you for the time that we're able to spend today looking at the millennium. We pray that we would have a, under, a better understanding about it. And where there's more who are interested, that they would dive into the topic more. There's so many good resources that we can go to to learn more about this. I pray you would help us to be able to do that and be interested in the things of God. And I do pray there would be none here who would be agnostic on the situation, like they just don't care what the millennial position is. Um, Lord, we want to know what your word teaches and we want to approach it. We want to, to come to the truth. We believe that you will work in our lives in that way. But we are not so afraid that we might come to the wrong aspect that we don't study your word. Lord, I also pray for any who are here who have never given their lives to you, that they would surrender themselves to you tonight. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.